0: It is March 25th, 1405, and we are in Paris. It is New Year's Day, also called Annunciation or Lady Day, celebrating the fateful day that poor Mary learned she was miraculously pregnant with Jesus. A sharp spring breeze chills the gargoyles of the Notre Dame. In 26 years, these same gargoyles will watch over the burning of Joan of Arc and over the centuries, countless other events, revolutions, beheadings, protests, and parades. Today though, the breeze is moving quickly east to catch the flags high on the turrets of the Palais de la Cite. The flag, a fleur-de-lis, on a field of royal blue, marks the arms of Charles VI, the current King of France. Below, in the court's yard, the King's knights attempt to stab and hit each other with swords as they practice fighting. Despite the current truce, the Hundred Years' War with England persists. Queen Isabeau has seized the reins of her husband's rule due to his severe and increasing bouts of mental illness. Today, however, the Queen has established herself and her retinue in her chambers at the Royal Residence, the Hotel St. Paul, away from the dirt and stench of the city's centre. She is accepting the gift of a handwritten and illuminated manuscript. The Book of the City of Ladies by court writer Christine de Pazan, purportedly the first and in the 15th century, the only known woman to earn her living as a writer. You are listening to She Speaks Volumes, the primer for 500 years of feminist writers, philosophy, and history. In this episode, we are listening to excerpts from The Book of the City of Ladies by Christine de Pazan, read by actor Leanne Woodward. If you enjoy this episode, please click on the Buy Me a Coffee link in the show notes or on my website to donate and help me hire additional actors for upcoming episodes. Completed by 1405, at the peak of Pisan's writing career, the Book of the City of Ladies is a collection of stories within a vision, within a story. The book catalogues notable women from history and myth. The only reason it is not as well known as the Decameron, the Divine Comedy or Canterbury Tales, is because until recently, works by women have not been considered as important to our cultural anatomy as the works of men. The Book of the City of Ladies tells of a vision Christine had in which three ladies, Reason, Rectitude and Justice, appear before her, sent by God to talk to Christine and assist her with the building of the City of Ladies. The city will be built from the stories of women who exemplify those qualities that were admired by Pizan and her contemporaries at the tail end of the age of chivalry. Bravery, intelligence, virtue, chastity, loyalty, and honor. The stories are sometimes surreal, and often offensive to a modern feminist, and should come with a trigger warning as rape, violence, and torture are common throughout the book.
1: Here begins the book of the Cities of Ladies, the first chapter of which explains why and for what purpose the book was written. One day I was sitting in my study, surrounded by many books of different kinds, for it has long been my habit to engage in the pursuit of knowledge. My mind had grown weary as I had spent the day struggling with the weighty tomes of various authors whom I have been studying for some time. I looked up from my book and decided that, for once, I would put aside these difficult texts and find instead something amusing and easy to read from the works of the poets. As I searched around for some little book, I happened to chance upon a work which did not belong to me, but was amongst a pile of others that had been placed in my safekeeping. I opened it up and saw from the title that it was by Matalu. With a smile, I made my choice. Although I had never read it, I knew that, unlike many other works, this one was said to be written in praise of women.
0: During the religious fervor of the medieval period, misogyny was the status quo. This was the era of the Inquisition. The cult of Catholicism had seized the crown, and madness reigned supreme. The number of women who lost their lives during this period are difficult to pin down. Some historians say tens of thousands, some say hundreds of thousands, and some say million. But many more women were executed than men, possibly a ratio of 78 to 1. At this point, Christine is called away from her reading, but the next day she picks it up again, eager to read something that might not denigrate women. She quickly dismisses it as immoral and of no use to the pursuit of virtue. But an extraordinary thought has been planted in Christine's head.
1: Why on earth is it that so many men, both clerks and others, have said such awful, damning things about women and their ways. It is not just a handful of writers who do this, nor is it only this Matalou whose book is neither regarded as authoritative nor intended to be taken seriously. It is all manner of philosophers, poets, and orators too numerous to mention, who all seem to speak with one voice and are unanimous in their view that female nature is wholly given up to vice. As Christine considers this thought, she examines her own
0: behavior as an example of womankind, and finding nothing that validates their prejudice, she objectively examines the behavior of all the women she knows, the many princesses and ladies of all social ranks. This sudden awareness, this leap of consciousness, might be something like seeing a drop of rain within the ocean. Everything in Christine's world would have spoken to the inferiority of the female, from the leadership to the church, the segregation and careful control of women, and everything that she read. I imagine that behind closed doors women had some influence over their husbands and sons, but no demonstrable power of their own. The exception for Christine would have been Queen Isabel, who, due to her husband's deteriorating mental health, had
1: taken over his duties. No matter which way I looked at it in my mind, and no matter how much I turned the question over in my mind, I could find no evidence in my own experience to bear out such a negative view of female nature and habits, I had to accept their unfavorable opinion of women since it was unlikely that so many learned men who seemed endowed with such great intelligence and insight into all things could possibly have lied on so many different occasions. It was on the basis of this one simple argument that that I was forced to conclude that although my understanding was too crude and ill-formed to recognize the great flaws in myself and other women, these men had to be in the right. Thus, I preferred to give more weight to what others said than to trust my own judgment and experience." Christine de Pazan was an exceptionally educated
0: woman for her time. She had access to the Royal Library, and her father, the King's astrologer, indulged her hunger for education despite her mother's disapproval. Christine would have read all the classic philosophers, Aristotle, Plato, and Obed, as well as writers such as Dante, Boccaccio, Petrarch, Thomas Aquinas, and Peter Abelard. These would have been her influences, along with numerous versions of the Bible, in Latin as well as French. Her learning would have been informed by her teachers, her family, the church, the beliefs of the court and its courtiers, the society and culture she lived in, especially the church. Medieval France was a pious society, controlled by the Catholic church. The church believed women were base, animal, earthly, and were the cause of the fall from grace. Women are the reason there is evil, and that childbirth is a punishment from God for the very being of a woman. Indeed, this logic formed the basis for culture in Europe and its colonies for centuries, and its effects are still felt today.
1: With a deep sigh, I called out to God, "'O oh Lord, how can this be?' Didn't you yourself create women especially, and then endow her with all the qualities that you wished her to have? Yet, here stand women, not simply accused, but already judged, sentenced, and condemned. Sick at heart, in my lament to God, I uttered these and many other foolish words, since I thought myself very unfortunate that he had given me a female form.
0: God and the Church guided all aspects of life in 15th century Europe, so these thoughts affected Christine heavily. She reviewed the writers she had studied and found nothing that indicated a positive view of women. This was in an age when women were supposedly more respected. Worship of the Virgin Mary was at its peak, and there was an increase in female scholarship within the church. But Christine languished herself into a bleak stupor at her own ignorance, at the ignorance of the women she knew, and the injustice of a god who had created such an inferior creature. In her depressive trance, Christine has a vision. She is visited by three ladies. Reason, rectitude, and justice.
1: Sunk in the unhappy thoughts, my head bowed, As if in shame, and my eyes full of tears, I sat slumped against the arm of my chair, with my cheek resting in my hand. All of a sudden, I saw a beam of light, like the rays of the sun, shine down in my lap. Since it was too dark at that time of day for the sun to come into my study, I woke with a start. As if from a deep sleep, I looked up to see where the light had come from, and all at once saw before me three ladies, crowned and of majestic appearance, whose faces shone with a brightness that lit up me and everything else in the place.
0: Reason speaks first and comforts Christine with the knowledge that the writers and philosophers she has studied are indeed wrong, and that they are professing an incredible pack of lies, and that the opposite of what they write should be believed, that she should return to her senses and trust her own judgment. She also tells Christine why they have come to her.
1: Our wish is to prevent others from falling into the same error as you, and to ensure that, in future, all worthy ladies and valiant women are protected from those who have attacked them. The female sex has been left defenseless for a long time now, like an orchard without a wall, and bereft of a champion to take up arms to protect it. Indeed, this is because those trusty knights who should by rights defend women have been negligent in their duty and lacking in vigilance, leaving womankind open to attacks from all sides. Even the strongest city will fall if there is no one to defend it, and even the most undeserving case will win if there is no one to testify against it. For this reason, we three ladies whom you see before you have been moved by pity to tell you that you are to construct a building in the shape of a world city, sturdy and impregnable. This has been decreed by God— who has chosen you to do this with our help and guidance. Only ladies who are of good reputation and worthy of praise will be admitted to this city. To those lacking in virtue, its gates will remain forever closed.
0: Christine de Pazan was born in Venice in 1364. In 1368, her father was engaged as the astrologer to then King Charles V, and Christine was raised as part of the French court. In 1379, Christine married Etienne de Castel, a notary and royal secretary. Within 10 years, she would lose her father, and her husband would be dead from the plague, leaving Christine to support her mother and her children. Christine's writing career was primarily supported by patrons in the royal family and the French aristocracy. This would certainly have influenced what and how she wrote. Christine wrote many poems, ballads, and chronicles, and three works on statecraft for Queen Isabel's son when he came of age, which have been lost, except for the last book, The Body Politic, which detailed military leadership and the function of the military class in broader society, during her era, Christine de Pazan was a much-respected writer and thinker, her works being published for well over a century after her death. To learn more about Christine de Pizan and the other writers in this series, you can sign up for the monthly newsletter. There are articles on the writers featured in this series, as well as updates on Feral Culture Lab podcasts and productions. The link is in the show notes and on the website, feralculturelab.com. The City of Ladies that Christine is to build is constructed from the stories of women who have shown courage, loyalty, virtue and honour throughout history. History as it was considered in 1405. Throughout the book, the three ladies each assist Christine in laying the foundations, erecting the walls and buildings, and constructing the roof of the city. In Part 1, Christine recounts her labour clearing the earth for the city's foundations and how Reason helps by clarifying the lies about women that Christine has learned from studying the works of men. Then the foundations are laid by the stories Reason tells her about heroic women leaders and warriors.
1: About the Amazon queen, Tamaris. As you will now go on to hear, the state founded by the Amazons flourished for a very long time with a whole succession of valiant ladies becoming queen. Since it would be tedious to tell you all of their names, I limit myself to the most famous individuals. One of the Amazon queens was the noble Tamaris, who was as brave as she was wise. Thanks to her intelligence, cunning, and military prowess, she defeated and captured Cyrus, a great and powerful king of Persia, who had performed many marvelous feats, including the conquest of the mighty Babylon and a large part of the whole world. Having vanquished so many countries, Cyrus decided to attack the realms of the Amazons in order to bring them, too, under his control. Once this wise queen had been informed by her spies that Cyrus was advancing towards her with an army big enough to defeat the entire world, she realized that there was no way to beat his troops by force, and that she would have to use guile. Eden from view Samaras and her army waited for Cyrus and his men to move into the narrow passages and gullies between the trees and the rocks, where he had to pick his way. At the key moment, she had her horns sounded, taking Cyrus completely by surprise. All were crushed and slain, except Cyrus and his barons, who were taken prisoner by order of the queen. She was so full of anger at Cyrus for having killed one of her sons, whom she had sent to his court, that she decided to show no mercy. She had his bare decapitated in front of him, saying, Cyrus, you who were so cruel and bloodthirsty from killing other men can now finally drink your fill." Thereupon, she had his head cut off and thrown into a barrel, in which all the blood of his barons had been collected. My sweet daughter and dear friend, I'm reminding you of these things because they are relevant to what we have been discussing. Indeed, you have recounted these stories yourself in your book of the Mutation of Fortune, and in your letter of Othea to Hector. Reason goes on to tell Christine many stories as Christine
0: creates the foundations of the city, building a history of women, of Amazons, queens, goddesses, virgins, and princesses, all skilled in
1: warcraft, highly intelligent and courageous. The second lady, called Rectitude, turned to me and said, My dear Christine, Take your tools and come with me. Don't hesitate to mix the mortar well in your inkpot and set to the masonry work with great strokes of your pen. I'll keep you well supplied with materials. We'll soon have to put up the royal palaces and noble mansions for the glorious and illustrious ladies who will come to live in this city forevermore. In part two... Rectitude
0: tells Christine many stories to construct the buildings within the city, starting with the Ten Sibyls, surprisingly all pagans. The buildings in the city are formed from the virtues of the Sibyls and other prophetesses that Rectitude describes as being uniquely close to God, despite that they were pagans. When the buildings are completed, Rectitude celebrates the new realm of Femininia, a city that will stand forevermore protecting the legacy of women. Now Christine must go and gather its citizens. Virtuous women, valiant, honorable women of great renown.
1: During the times that Rome was engaged in its great conquests of foreign lands, the king of the Galatians and his wife were taken prisoner by the Romans. During their captivity, one of the Roman generals became infatuated with the noble queen, who was not only beautiful and modest, but also virtuous and chaste. He pleased with her at great length. He tried to bribe her with gifts, but seeing that his entreaties were having no effect, he forced himself on her. The queen was so distressed by this outrage, she could not stop thinking about how to avenge herself. She bided her time and hid her feelings until the ransom that would free her and her husband arrived. The lady insisted the money be handed over to the general in her presence— she advised him to weigh the gold and to make sure he was not being cheated. Whilst he was checking the money, and when none of his men were present, the lady picked up a knife and slit his throat. Such was the stories that rectitude told me on the subject, Lack of space prevents me from going into detail on all of the examples she gave me, such as Lena, a Greek woman who refused to denounce two men who were friends of hers, preferring instead to bite off her own tongue in front of the judge. Rectitude also told me of other women who were so strong-willed that They chose to die from drinking poison rather than failed to uphold truce and decency. Many of the stories in City
0: of Ladies may be offensive to modern-day women, particularly the self-sacrificing stories where women who have been raped throw themselves on swords so their husbands may avoid shame, or the women who stay with their husbands that are shockingly abusive, knowing God will reward their loyalty and obedience. To women in the 15th century, however, these were admirable qualities, and not wholly dead in today's society. Women still stay in abusive relationships out of loyalty, and still internalize a self-destructive feeling of shame at having been raped, despite the fact that women were only taught to feel shame because rape meant a loss of virtue. But for who? Who was this virtue serving? It is what I like about the story of the Queen of the Galatians, who was sadly not named. She had agency. She actively and independently responded to being raped. After the inhabitants arrive in the City of ladies, Justice steps forward to bring the finishing touches. The Queen and the Court of the City of ladies. The Queen, who will reside over the city, is the Queen of Heaven, Mary, Mother of Jesus, and with her the Magdalene. The Court is created from the stories of female saints and martyrs. These stories are fantastically rich in symbolism and magic, but essentially illustrate a horrifically patriarchal ideology, violent and punitive. The Queen of Heaven and the Magdalene are then invited through prayer, and Justice tells the story of St. Catherine, the daughter of the King of Alexandria. At 18, she inherits her father's lands, which she manages with great discernment. As a Christian, she has decided not to marry, but to devote herself to God. The emperor, Maxentius, comes to Alexandria to sacrifice at one of the pagan temples. Catherine approaches him and tries to convert him to
1: Christianity. The tyrant Maxentius, who was inflamed with desire for the beautiful Holy Catherine, began to pay court to her in attempt to persuade her to do his bidding. However, when he saw that he was getting nowhere with her, his pleas turned to threats and then to torture. He inflicted a cruel beating on her before throwing her into prison. She was placed in solitary confinement for twelve days, He hoped to starve her into submission. When the twelve days were up, she was brought before the emperor once more. Seeing that she was even healthier and lovelier than before, he was at a loss as to how to inflict an even crueler torture on her than before. The emperor took his prefect's advice and had wheels made up, which were fitted with razor blades. The emperor had Catherine stripped and forced her to lie between the wheels, yet she never once left off worshipping God. When the emperor's wife learnt about all the miracles that God was performing on Catherine's behalf, she converted to Christianity and criticized her husband for his conduct. The emperor had his wife tortured and her breasts cut off, whereupon the virgin said to her, Most noble queen, don't be afraid of these tortures, for today you shall be received into never-ending joy. The tyrant ordered his wife to be beheaded, at which sight huge numbers of his subjects converted. He asked Catherine, to become his wife, but when he realized that she was turning a deaf ear to all his pleas, he finally condemned her to be decapitated as well. In her prayers, she invoked the grace of God for all those who would remember her martyrdom. As her martyrdom came to an end, milk, rather than blood, poured forth from her body
0: there are numerous stories of female martyrs in part three of the city of ladies all detailing horrific tortures inflicted on beautiful and virtuous women but the tortures are also fantastic surreal and metaphorical wounds that bleed milk instead of blood perfumed scents arising from burning bodies or from the mouths of virgins who miraculously survive being crushed by spiked concrete wheels. Mystical creatures appear, angels sing, and clouds descend from the sky to cover nubile bodies stripped bare in public. It isn't the historical accuracy of these stories that are important. Their trueness is in the naming of women, who had agency, however misguided, who made a mark, who made their presence known in a history written by men, told to men, with the specific purpose of patriarchal dominion. These tales create a backstory for women, a history of our own, a frame of reference for what we were doing while he was busy doing the things we learn about in school. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of She Speaks Volumes. If you have, please give the show a good review on Podchaser. The link is in the show notes. To support the show, you can subscribe to the newsletter, follow She Speaks Volumes on Instagram, and donate through Buy Me a Coffee to help me hire more actors for future episodes. In the next episode, we are listening to passages from Dialogue on the Infinity of Love, written by the 16th century Italian philosopher and courtesan Tullia d'Aragona.